0: Hello and welcome to episode 137 of Constructing Comics, a podcast building stories one page and one panel at a time. On this episode, we have an interview with Cory De, De LaGuardia. excuse me. Uh, he's the writer of Department of Metahuman Affairs. Uh, this is Matt and uh, Corey. You were on episode 60 to talk about your other comic, Another Day at the Office. Uh, but thanks so much for for coming back. Uh, for anybody who wasn't able to listen to episode 60, uh, why don't you give us a, a brief bio about yourself and the and the comics that you make?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on. By the way, uh, like like you said, this is my second go around here with you guys. Um, so I started out in just pop culture in general. I uh, well, I grew up with comic books and I loved them. And I started in podcasting, actually. This is my fourth year of podcasting FM radio, a show called Nerd Thug Radio. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of led to opportunities and, and just the ability to start making comic books a couple years ago. So Another Day at the Office was my first, my first comic book ever. Uh, and we released it last summer. Uh, and I'm just doing a follow-up issue that's actually printing right now as we speak. And then I'm starting the Department of Meta-Human Affairs, which is going to go to printers next month. I'd like to start getting into the spot where I kind of make one or two books a month. Okay. Um, and so that's my goal, at least. Um, and so that's where we're at now. So the Department of Meta-Human Affairs is the, a new project. And I've got a little secret shop up, uh, corydlg.squarespace.com where they can still get a digital copy of Another Day at the Office and pre-order for Department of Meta-Human Affairs or buy a T-shirt for the radio show.
0: Very cool. Well, we'll uh, we will definitely have a link to, to that in the uh, the show notes. Um, so you had mentioned earlier that you had always uh, sort of been into comics. What were some of the uh, the earliest sort of comics you remember and maybe some of the, the people who might have influenced you to take on the, uh, the chore of being a comics writer?
1: So I had uh, kind of the luxury. I'm not the oldest kid in the family. I'm the oldest from my set, but I have a cousin who's a little bit older. And uh, he had leukemia when he was a kid. And so he was doing chemotherapy and stuff when he was supposed to be learning how to read. So books were a lot harder to read and all that. You get a, they call it chemo sickness and like dyslexia that can be onset by chemotherapy and all that. And So comic books were easier to read. So when he's supposed to be learning how to read, there's just comic books all over the house. And so by the time that I'm a kid at my grandma's house, at my house, at my aunt's house, anywhere I could go as a kid, there were just comic books everywhere. Um, So like the, the great mid-80s of comic books, so like Legion of Superheroes, uh, the John Byrne reboot of Man of Steel, mm-hmm. uh, Claremont X-Men, like just, they're just everywhere. They're like sitting on bookshelves, they're on top of TVs, they're in the toy room, like you couldn't, you couldn't go anywhere without tripping over Spider-Man or something else. And So I just grew up with comic books and, you know, back then there wasn't anything except the big two. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like you fall in love with those characters and you start to know those characters you feel like they're like your friends so like I loved the Claremont Expo and so in a lot of ways coming forward um, just as I got older I realized like people have jobs writing these like somebody does this um, I had another cousin who was really artistically talented and so he would always draw but he didn't want to write stories and so then I was like I'll write stories for you and like when you're a kid you think it's so brilliant but it mm-hmm. never made more than like two pages at a time um, but it, it started kind of that bug, I think, even back then, where it was like, I can create these stories. It's literally somebody's job is just to show up and write Spider-Man all day, and I was like, how great would that be? So, in the back of my mind, I kind of feel like it's always been there. Uh, I went to college for aerospace engineering, and then I blew my professor's mind when, like, <laughs> like, middle of the second semester, I was like, I don't want to do this. I think I want to be a writer instead, and he was like, what do you think you want to write? And I was like, comic books. He was like, just get out of my office. Like... <laughs> what are you talking about so it's kind of always just circle so I never got too far away from it
0: do you remember the uh the first name that might have sort of been a repeat name in one of those books you would have picked up around the house that you're like oh like I know this name or this I've seen this name before do you, like uh, as a writer's name was there one of those that, oh it was like, Chris
1: Claremont like Chris Claremont. that guy I, I it's funny I watched a special on Amazon Prime I think and they talk about when they brought him on to do X-Men, it was doing, like, 30,000 copies. That blows my mind. That mm-hmm. blows my mind that nobody was reading X-Men. Like, who who doesn't get just pumped up about the X-Men? And then they talk about how, like, he was the guy who, like, everything you think you know about the X-Men it winds up that he's the guy who did. The Hellfire mm-hmm. Club, uh, you know, Apocalypse, uh, Mr. Sinister, just all of it. And, like, it's it's all from his era. Like, they don't even – they. They do a little bit more now, but for a long time, nobody made new characters for the X-Men. They just kept rehashing the set from the eighties that he made. Like it was almost like he made the set of toys and everyone else just got to play with them. You know what I mean?
0: So, yeah, I do. Um, Do you think that, uh, I know that like sometimes the, the, the way that people talk about Claremont and the way that he sort of like pontificated and like told you everything. Did you think that that was made it easier for you Like entering the book, you might not have had. I'm guessing if you just sort of had books laying around, you might not have had consecutive issues. But the way that he did that was it made it make an easy entry point to you.
1: Uh, For sure, because as a kid, I don't, I didn't necessarily understand that they were in that they were in any particular order. Because like when you're a kid, anything you consume, it's like it's only there right there in that one spot for you. So like if you're Mm -hmm. watching TV, okay, this was the only episode of General Hospital I've seen ever, and then like I might see another one ten months from now. And I don't have any concept that they go in a particular order because when you're a kid, you just kind of consume things as you go. So like it was years before I realized that there was a particular order that comic books even went in. Um, But I think that that kind of helps because like anytime you open a book, he tells you within the first two pages, you know exactly what's going on and what this issue is going to be about. So it almost doesn't matter in a weird way. Like you could have read the X-Men, I guess, and I did. You could have read them in any order. Mm -hmm. And it would have, it still would have made sense as a story because at the first, within the first two pages, Chris Claremont's like, unbelievably, Wolverine has survived an attack from 19 Sentinels and is ready to, hey, you know, and you're you're right in it. You're like, okay, well, now I know what's going on.
0: Very cool. So when you, after you had told that professor that you wanted to sort of leave that program and pursue a career writing comics, uh, what was... What was sort of your basis for research? Were you just reading anything you could get your hand on, or did you go to sort of the tried-and-true classics like the Scott McCloud, or was it a combination of the two?
1: So at the time, uh, it's, I graduated high school in 2002. Uh, and so I was at University of Alabama, which at the time was the number two program for aerospace engineering. I'm sure my parents or my dad's rolling in his grave right now as I tell this story. Uh – but Image had just blown up a couple of years before, mm-hmm. and this was this was we were living in like the creator revolution, um, and so at the time it it seemed so simple that it was almost just like I just remember sitting there as a as a as a nineteen year old thinking to myself, well, well, yeah, I'll just make comic books like everyone else can do it, like Todd McFarlane and Jim Lee can do it. Of course, I can do it, right? Like because ignorantly that is i mean it's kind of what it seemed like back then because they were just we made new books and they were selling a million copies and and you just kind of felt like it was it's not true but it it was what they did with image it made it feel like anybody can make comic books um which was cool which is what you want to hear when you're 19 that anybody Mm -hmm. can do it
0: (laughs) awesome no uh so so that's very cool um so let's uh Let's dive back a little bit, uh, or actually maybe it's a little bit forward. Um, when was the time that you made the decision to to start writing uh, Another Day at the Office?
1: So Another Day at the Office, when I came home from college, I actually, for the first year, I pursued it really, really hard writing. I, 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 every day I was like, what can I do today to just to, to be writing comic books? And... Um. Very shortly into that, I started writing a column for ComicWorks.com. Okay. It was, um, it was called The Passion of the Corey. And it was – I think it went on for about eight months. Uh, and God bless whoever had to edit that because, like, it was just a mess, just like a rambling thought. Just probably how these answers are, honestly. And then they just had to deal with it. Um, <laughs> but so during that time, I also was pursuing any, any type of post anywhere on the internet that was like, hey, we're looking for writers. I I responded to it and I got two different writing contracts during that time. One with Atlantis publishing and one with Warped in comics and neither one of them went anywhere. Um, But the Warped in comics pitch, they were only taking single issue stories and I made it through like a process of like interviews and conversations and emails. And they're like, okay, you're one of our, like our final four. So submit us a script. And that was when they hammer you with, they only want single issue submission. They don't want, you know, your first, cause when you're a kid, you, you really think you're going to write like the 300 issue moon night super story that everyone needed in their life.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: these guys are really just trying to find out they can even sell a comic book. Sure. Um, and so they just wanted one issue. And so I felt really limited by that. I was really kind of, my feelings were hurt a little bit. I was like, I went through all this just so I could write one thing. And so I felt really handcuffed and handicapped by it. And the, concept that came out of that was like i can't do anything with this and so then that became the story of a cop who can't do his job because he lives in a city full of superheroes
2: mm-hmm.
1: and so then it becomes a comedy because then it's funny that i'm complaining about like <laughs> finally getting to do the thing i want to do and somehow i'm unhappy about it and so it turns into this comedic idea that like the superheroes are just listen they're more efficient at fighting crime than a police officer and so he just kind of has to deal with that world no matter how much he does or doesn't like it and so it creates a comedy um, where it's not necessarily he's funny. It's just the humor of the situation. The world is what's funny. So that was where that kind of comes from.
0: Very cool. So do you, do you find that you like to sort of inject the, the everyman into sort of a superheroic world?
1: Yeah, I think, I think that's something that's going on right now in modern comics that I think is a little disconnecting. Is that the stories kind of keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger? Um, I just I picked up the first trade of the new Justice League post I guess post rebirth,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and the very first arc is these elder gods show up and they want to purge the world. Well, then I was reading um, the solicits for the new stuff coming out, and old dark gods from the past have come and they want to purge the world, and I was like, well. I guess you can only do so many things if you always have to kind of keep one upping it. And so the Everyman lets you kind of scale back the size of what's going to happen, but still tell a really impactful story. Like in the department of meta human affairs, I don't have to put the fate of the world at stake for it to be an intense moment. Like I can do something personal or I can do something big, but not huge. And still tell like a dramatic story with it.
0: Very cool. So uh, before we go more into the Department of uh, Metahuman Affairs, uh, let's let's go back to uh, another day at the office. So this was the first thing that you, I guess, quote unquote, seriously wrote. Um, how did you uh, go about uh, getting getting your art team there?
1: So for that one, I. Um... I paid my way through college uh, okay. out of my own pocket after after I turned down a full ride scholarship. And at the time, my parents were like, "That's what you have. That's kind of your penance." Okay, you, you you took responsibility for yourself, so you're responsible for yourself. So you have to pay for your own college. I said, "Okay, fine." So fast forward a few years, one of my younger siblings, um, they needed help financially to get through to get through school, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's totally fine. Um, but my parents were really big on being like equitable. They didn't want one child to feel like like if, if I needed to do something for one, I did something for the others kind of a deal. Mm-hmm. And so they, because they were helping her, they repaid me some of what I put into college. So then I had a little bit of money. It was a couple thousand dollars. And so I took that and I invested it in two projects and one of them made it all the way through. And that was another day at the office. So I paid an artist and a colorist and a letter to create, uh, that project.
0: Very cool. And so, what were some of the, uh, uh, I guess, first time writer, you know, turning this, turning something over to an artist. What were some of the? Did you, did you face any hurdles? Did things go go smoothly?
1: You know, you know what's funny. Um, The first one went so awesome that I literally was like, "There's how do people screw this up? (laughs) Like it's so easy." It went. So great that there was I, I literally struggled to I, I I had no problems and not, I couldn't figure out how people were I was like, am I just this much better than ever you know like does my stuff just not stink? Um and then when I turned around and I started on the second project, it was such a train wreck. It took it took me almost eleven months to finish this one book. Um, the second, the second issue. And okay. that suddenly opened my eyes to why people have an editor. Um, how do people screw up this thing? Like, how does it get this bad? Um, I was working because I'm on a limited budget. I was working with a lot of foreign artists, uh, who just, they just take lower page rates. It's not that they turn in worse work or anything like that. It's just, they can afford to take less money.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and so language became with the first artist who also was from somewhere else. We were able to communicate well enough that there were never any issues. There were a couple of things I had him redraw on some panels or photo references I'd have to send him. Uh he didn't know what a phone looked like. Like I had to keep rescinding what phones looked like and like I was like, no no, they look like this. And he but eventually we got there. Okay. Well on this on the second one, almost every single page had problems. So like we were constantly redrawing stuff, constantly. And then when we got through that process of art, I, had, I was working with a color and a letter, and I was just sending them the files straight through. I was approving them and then just giving them over. But what I wasn't checking, and this was my screw-up 100%, was that all the files were the same standard size. So that the page dimensions were correct. Okay. This is, you, you learn this when you start dealing with printers. It's not something you know when you start making comic books. Sure. So my page dimensions weren't all uniform. So I literally get through the entire comic book. I hired and fired four different colorists. If you recall, the first issue is colored kind of uniquely. Uh, I like the brighter colors on it. There's no ink. Uh, It's purposely very brightly lit because I want it to be mentally light. I want you to to have fun reading it because it's a comedy. Mm -hmm. So I wanted even the colors to be brighter. So I had to go through several colorists before I found one who kind of understood you know, the idea of what we were going for. And a lot of people would be like, oh, yeah, I can do that, no problem. And then they would turn into just like the darkest, heaviest pages I was seeing. And I was like, wow, we really, we really want to the opposite ends of this. So get through the, get all the way to the letter. The letter hands me the last page. Uh, I go to give it to a printing company. And the printing guy emails me and he's like, what did you send me? He's like, this is a mess. And I said, what do you mean? And he sends me like a preview PDF of what it would look like. And nothing's the same size. Uh, Some of them wind up being like tiny squares on a page. Like everything is just wrong. So when I start backtracking to see how much I can save before I have to restart, the colorist is like, well, I'd have to completely redo everything from flats. But at first, the pages need to be the right size at the very beginning. Otherwise, the art's going to be wrong. It's going to be pixelated. It's going to look weird. So the artist had to resave everything to the proper sizes. And that took a month and a half to get him to sit down and send me the right pages at the right dimensions before I could finally move them over to the to the other section. Like it was just lessons in how to make comic books, like one oh one. Like let me tell you.
0: Well, I'm guessing maybe it was good that it happened in uh the reverse order that you had the good experience first as opposed to the to the bad experience first, cause that might have uh sort of Put such a mental sort of block in your head that you were like, ah, oh, but you, you at least you had that good experience first, so you knew that it was possible, right?
1: It, it did. It it was really kind of weird because I like I kept I kept thinking to myself, I was like, I already did this. Like I've already done this before. How do I, how was it so hard this time? And it just really was little things, things you didn't, things you you didn't know to check the first time, and just got lucky the mm-hmm. second time through. I, I didn't get lucky, and I had to check them, and I. I had to learn. So then as I'm getting the pages in for DMA, I'm like, I'm looking over dimensions from the artists. I'm like, Hey man, this has got to fit. Like from the very beginning, I was like, I need X amount of DPI. Like I know exactly what I need now on every single page. And I did not know that a year ago, two years ago.
0: Yeah. I think, uh, I, I think sort of like the indie comics creator, uh, a lot of times as the writer, you're sort of the writer and the project manager And you you learn, you learn by doing. um, And it's sort of uh, uh, each time you sort of you realize that this is sort of like a milestone or like a stumbling block that you don't want to, you don't want to hit. So each time you go into it, you're like, all right, I got this, I got this, I got this. And then you trip up here, but the next time you go in, you're like, I got this, I got this, I got this. <laughs> and then you, you, you get over that hurdle and you trip up somewhere else, but eventually you're going to run that race so many times that you.
1: Suddenly you, it's w- a smooth process. And yeah. I do think, I think, so I always hated this answer when people are like, how do you break into the big two? And the guy sitting up on stage goes, we well, just made comic books. Mm-hmm. I hated that answer. I hated it. I thought it was so unhelpful. I thought it was so, well, I'm here and you're not, and you'll never know. Like I really felt like almost like gatekeeping, which I know is a bad word now. Mm-hmm. Um, but now that I've been on this side of it a couple of times, I realize the only way to break into comic books is to make comic books. Sure. Because like, it even changed how I wrote script-wise because I was now more aware of page economy. And, you know, what I want to do inside each page and the limitations of artists like I can't just tell them, uh, you know, now they look angry and now they look happy and now they look sad. I've got to be very specific in my facial expressions so that artists, even from other countries, can interpret it correctly and give me back what I need for my story to work. And so there's definitely a ton of learning that you really do go through on this that I'm not even broken into comics. and I don't know that I ever will be but I, I now know the first piece of advice is to just make comments.
0: Yeah. That you, you hear that a lot. Um, I was at a con one time where we asked a creator, like uh, he, we, we had seen him talk at a con and then we went up to him and we, we asked him, you know, he had said this, he had made this comment that he had done this stuff, which afforded him with a certain amount of latitude that he could keep going. And we we're like, so like, could you tell us a little bit more about that? And he was like, well, you just got to make good comics. And and then everything sort of like falls into place. And I I looked at my friend and I'm like, that was like the best answer in the world and the worst answer in the world all at at the same time.
1: It is. It's completely unhelpful and it's completely accurate. Like it is. Yeah. It just, it's a, it's a sucky answer, but it's the only answer, right? Like, Hey, well, how did you get so lucky? Well, I didn't really get lucky. I made comic books. Like, Mm -hmm. You know, and then, you get, and then they can kind of explain it from there. And it's Now, there's still an entire element of who you know, writing agents, and all sorts of other parts of it. But the first part is making comic books and, and just making stuff that, A, you want to read first, mm-hmm. and then, B, stuff that other people want to read. And then as you reach a level of success, then the other publishers now can take notice and and, and invest in you. And that's what they're doing is they're investing money into you. It's an expensive process.
0: Sure, and I think it also shows uh, a level of uh, you know commitment and, and and seriousness about it to to see something from from beginning to end because there's you know um, you know I certainly am uh, guilty of early on in my sort of creative career starting and not finishing, but it shows that you have the ability to to to, to finish a project, which is which is very important as well.
1: It is. And it also though is resources like that's just ultimately. Part of it is just like there's been times when I've had resources and it's been easy to make comic books. And there's times when you don't have resources and maybe comic books shouldn't be your focus right now. Sure. Um, that's a big part of it too. And that's not a fair thing to say, but it's just a reality of all just creating art in general. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you can't afford the studio time, I don't think you're going to come out with an album. You know what I mean? Like,
0: yeah. So you have, am I correct in that you have two issues of uh, Another Day at the Office done?
1: I, so there the second issue is at the printers right now uh, okay. it was a it was a pre-order thing. I don't like to mess with Kickstarter. Um, I, I might I might start. I don't. I don't like to do Kickstarters because to me it feels like a lot of times when you do a Kickstarter, people are paying you to then produce the work. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I kind of ran it as my own indie campaign, but the book was already done. So I took pre-orders on the finished product. It's going to be in a couple of stores: um, Space Cadets. And the adventure begins down here in Houston. Cool. It's going to be in Dallas in a store called Titan Titan Books, uh, Titan Comics. And then there's two other stores that bought from me. Uh, I forgot to write them down. Um, There's two other stores that also bought from me that will have this. You'll be able to buy it. I bet if you uh, go to the Comic Book Shopping Network, there will be copies that they wind up putting up there um, because that's run by Jen King who owns Space Cadets. Okay. She's been very kind to me in my career so far. She's a very awesome person. Uh, And she originally, she bought a hundred variant copies from me for my first issue. And we were going to sell them together on CBSN and we couldn't get our schedules together. So I suspect she's going to probably put the copies she gets of this up there on CBSN also.
0: Very cool. So uh, you are very committed to having uh, the project done and ready to go before you are, are reaching out to to you know the 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 pre-orders and stuff like that which is very important
1: yeah um, I, I always feel like you see a lot of people there's always those stories right where somebody's waiting 18 months for a comic book or something um i think the comic skaters had a big problem with that with uh ethan van skeever's uh cyber Frog thing i think it took years to make or something like that and that's not yeah. really fair to people who give you money you know if people give you money you really should be able to deliver a product uh and i open it up to my friends way in advance because i know there'll be a little more understanding so a lot of them ordered like october november ish for this mm-hmm. comic book that's about to come out um but as far as stores and stuff i didn't take i didn't start taking orders for that until the last month very and the book's cool. already at the printers now
0: very yeah very cool um, so when you went to the, to the new book, the, the department book, um, so, so now you're juggling two different titles and, and writing two different titles. Uh, how do you handle that? Are you sort of, uh, you know, like maybe one day the, the one book is calling to you sort of, you know, you have the muse to work on that. Or are you very regimented that you're like, uh, I'm going to work on this title for, for this set amount of time, then I'm going to work on, on this one. How how do you handle that?
1: So I have the luxury that when I have an idea, by the time I go to put it on paper, I've got a ton. It's beefy. By the time I go to type it down, it's not just Superman drop kicks the moon. It's something's going on in space, and they got to get to this, and, duh, 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 duh. and then Superman drop Kicks the moon, and then a bunch more. So when I go for my notes for each of these, I've basically already built out the scenes for the next several issues already. And so I just have the luxury now if I just get to go back in and now I get to script and block and kind of build those scenes out. But it's almost more mechanical in nature because of I, I tend to have big ideas and then I, I'm able to fill them in in my head before I actually sit down and go pen and paper so that I have a little bit of structure before I start. If I try to start that too early, I wind up – in the middle of a mess with no beginning or end and just like a bunch of cool ideas and then trying to figure out how to put them together. So this is always a little bit more, my process has evolved to this point, I should say.
0: So um, are you letting ideas sort of percolate in your mind? It's like, like maybe you're going for a walk or you're doing something else and something pops into, you, into your mind. Do, do you write it down at that moment or do you sort of like know that you can lock that away and then sort of then sort of mentally, uh, sort of work it through? How do, how do you make sure that you capture those ideas?
1: So I've, I've kind of, I've been lucky in the sense that uh, however my big dumb brain works, I'm able to recall what I want when I want it. Okay. And so a lot of times there will be inspirational moments that happen. Like for me, a lot of times when I see a movie and they go in a direction that I wouldn't have gone in, I then sort of picture how the movie would have ended the other way. And if, like if there's something in there I like or a scene or a mo- literally a moment of fake dialogue in the fake movie that I fake watch, mm-hmm. I'll take it and I'll be like, oh, yeah, that'll be – that's something I kind of like. I want to keep that. And then I can file it away somewhere in my, in my big dumb brain somehow. And then I, I do have the luxury of being able to recall those things that I, that I like
0: very cool uh so what was the spark of inspiration for uh department of metahuman affairs
1: um originally like a million years ago i wanted to build a superhero universe and i really spent a long time thinking about what would they look like in the sense of like a ground level hero and then like a team of heroes and then someone on the like space stuff and someone on the mystic stuff and like it was almost kind of formulaic, and this was sort of going to be part of that process. But then over time, I realized, I don't really want to tell all those other stories right now. Like I really like the idea that I came up with for these characters. and So then I was like, I just want to stick with these guys for a while. And that really was kind of the start of the Department of Mental Human Affairs. Um, also, I'm a politics junkie. I mm. love politics. I love the way people kind of manipulate the headlines and kind of command attention and kind of make things happen without actively doing like the show The West Wing was amazing to me. Uh and so in a lot of ways some of that kind of inspires the Department of Man and Human Affairs. Um, I put it in like all my promo stuff that it's Claremont's X-Men meets the West Wing.
2: Very because cool. it
1: is kind of a lot of personal stuff and then also big but not like I think sometimes uh, the Avengers and the Justice League get too big now. I think I think there's only so many times the Elder Gods can come to perch the world before maybe somebody just fights Toy Man again. <laughs> so like, <laughs> like they just do something simpler every once in a while. And so the first eight pages that I gave to you, the preview art, uh, I wanted to show readers and I wanted to show the world that like, hey, guess what? There's no Avengers. There's no Justice League in this world. They're gone. They die. They don't make it. And the story that I'm going to tell you, the story I want to give to you, the story I want to go on with you, that journey, is what does it look like when everyone else has to kind of step up and fill in the shoes of the big guys? And even the smaller calamitous events become a big deal because these guys are probably outgunned and ill-equipped to deal with.
0: Very nice. So somebody who – is very much into to politics and is a self-described political junkie. You know, there's a lot of times where folks will complain about uh, "Don't put politics in my comics," not realizing that those comics that they grew up reading were or political sort of, forever. Yeah. Forever. <laughs> so, so how do you? Uh, is so? Are you trying to to sort of borrow on that where? You're sort of telling a story. You're presenting a viewpoint, uh, but you are sort of trying to mask it. That's not like overtly like this is what I'm telling you. Like have the person sort of read it, enjoy the story, and then maybe like two or three days later, they might be you know mowing the grass and go, oh, that's what Corey was doing there. He <laughs> he he snuck that he snuck that one past me. How how are you uh, how are you trying to do that?
1: So the 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 world that I'm kind of building in. Uh, the Department of Meta-Human Affairs is run by the federal government. Okay. Uh, within the federal government, there's going to be Republicans. There's going to be Democrats. There's going to be lifelong politicians. There's going to be newbies. There's going to be career uh, operatives, You know, people who just exist in the government forever. Um, Dr. Fauci you know, has worked for like five presidents at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, so the idea is there's going to be people who feel different ways, and I don't have a problem – so I'm from Texas, and here in Texas, pretty much almost by default, everyone is some form of Republican, mm-hmm. uh, and I consider myself kind of a moderate, independent person. I voted uh, for Bush twice. I voted for Obama twice. Um, I don't have an issue necessarily with the platform of either side uh, when you start talking about what are what do they stand for. Um, so for me, I don't have an issue – on the things that Republicans maybe get right, I don't have a problem talking about those things and giving them fair credit for that. Versus the things that I think Democrats get right, and then I think there's things that Democrats get wrong and I think there's things that Republicans get wrong. And you can show those arguments in a way where—did uh, you ever see the movie, the show on HBO the Newsroom?
0: Uh, no, I haven't. Uh, I, I have a basic uh, awareness of it. it though. Essentially,
1: he he goes on almost like a crusade of honesty in the in the era of. Postmodern truthism that we live in now, where everyone has their own version of reality. Okay. But in the very first episode, he's sitting next to a Republican and a Democrat talking head, and he looks to each of them and he makes a strong point about the problem with both of their parties at the same time, to where you literally don't know where he stands. Okay. And, and I and I think that that's it's not that that's impossible. Like you could do that in a story where you can point out that, uh, you know, the I think he I think he criticizes the the. Uh, the fund that goes to the arts from the government, the NIH, he's like, it's um, you know, it's it's great for you guys, but it's a loser. It's it's point zero zero one percent of the national budget, and it and it costs you ten thousand votes in the Midwest every every election. Okay, and it's a good point. Like, that's pretty accurate because somebody does something stupid with the art money, and then the Midwest gets to complain about it, and they're like, my tax dollars funded this. This is stupid, and then they don't vote for you. It. And it's a great point. And then he says something to the Republican, I don't remember what it is that it says, but it's the same concept. He points out just an absolute failing of their policy that creates the opening for the other side. And so there's – no one's perfect. And so it's easy – It's I think it's easy to walk down the middle and just kind of showcase the benefits and the failings of both ideologies.
0: Very cool. Uh, so let's uh... – Let's talk a little bit about the uh, department. Um, so is there anybody that you worked on this from the art team that's uh, the same from, from the other books? Or is this a totally new new art team that you brought in?
1: Uh, new art team. I, I am working with a couple of the couple of the same people, I shouldn't say. Uh, so the colorist is a guy, Agus DH. And he's the guy who wound up coming in and saving my butt on another day at the office. OK. The second issue. And the letter, Alex DeLuca, is the same thing. Alex is actually the one who figured out my file size issue. Uh, as I was going to the printer, he was like, he's like, none of these are the same size. It's going to turn out crap. And I was like, well, maybe the printer can fix it. The printer was like, no, you can't say this. <laughs> and so full credit goes to Alex for being like, hey, these these aren't lining up. Um, and so on this one, I'm working with uh, uh, a new guy, Ulysses, uh, I wrote his name because I don't want to say it wrong, Carpentero, who is with Jeff Batista Studios. Okay. And he's awesome. He's great. These pages, I'm super stoked for him. I think, I think, I think when you see him, you're gonna be like, yeah, this, this is a comic book. Like, this looks great. Um, and then Alberto Velasco is uh, inking on them, okay. and the pages are coming back really great. And there's so much detail. I feel bad on some of them. Uh, you could see the huge battle scene, and then he had to turn around. And he had to go through and ink all of that. And as I was sending it to him, I thought to myself, like, Man, he's earning his page rate on these. Like, <laughs> uh, and then Nicole DeAndre is helping me. She's editing. And I got an editor for this specifically because I want it to make sure I really, really like this comic book. I think this is a great book, but I want it to make sure that I'm not crazy. So literally I email her like my scripts, and I email her the pages, I email her the art, and I'm always like, Hey, just, just fact check me here. Like this looks good, right? Like I'm not like and she's always like, Yeah, this works, this you know, your anatomy's good here, you know, whatever, whatever but she doesn't want to. She doesn't want to say if she likes the book or not. She might hate the book, but uh, but she definitely is like keeping me on balance as far as on schedule, but also like everything is is accurate. And so I appreciate that help because I'm so in my head about it that I'm probably going to miss a million things as I go through it.
0: Yeah, that was a question I was going to ask you about having an editor because uh, a lot of times, you know, sort of as the writer. The, the the idea starts with you and you've worked it through so many times and then it goes to, to, to the artist and they're drawing it and you've lived with it in your, with, in your head for so many times that like you might sort of see it as the thing that you've been living with in your head and you don't actually see it as the, the thing that's being presented or the the storytelling is clear to you because you know, you, you know, the story, but somebody who hasn't sort of walked around with that sort of story in their head for for a couple of months or, or longer uh, sees that and is able to tell you that, Hey, this isn't clear right here. You need to sort of clear that up. So uh, that's, that was a question I was going to ask you about the editor, but it sounds like from your answer that, that, that you have that.
1: Yeah, totally. stole your question there. Cause I'm brilliant at this. No, I, uh, I definitely was, you know, you don't want to mess it up. You don't want to mess it up, and you don't know what it's going to be like um, when it's finished. You mm-hmm. you know what you have, you know what you have in your head when you start, and so to try and make sure that it doesn't suck when it's finished, I wanted to get an editor for this one. I just thought like I I like it too much for it to fail.
0: So does Nicole have like a, like a, like a story Bible or, or sort of have like a basic outline. So she knows that you're sort of progressing towards sort of uh, the, the direction you want to go. Um, How does, how does that work for her?
1: Yeah. So like, I didn't realize at first that I probably should have given her one of those and I sent her the first script, and all that text that's in those first eight pages is somebody speaking uh, at a funeral. And she was like, I really like what we're saying here, but but who's speaking? Who are they talking to? Like, is this just a narrator? Is there going to be a narrator in all of this? And I was like, oh, I guess you should know what happens. <laughs> I was like, here's the Bible. My fault. And then she was like, oh, okay. All right, I got you here. But, yeah, that was my first experience there with an editor, and I just sent her the script, and I was like, tell me what you think. And at first, she was like, who the hell are you talking to? <laughs> so that was, that was helpful.
0: Very cool um so what are what are your plans for both another day at the office and department like uh do you do you have a set number of uh issues that you're that you're going for um i I think earlier i don't know if it was pre-interview or early in the interview you said that you were trying to i think you had a goal as far as like a number of books uh per time period per month that you were that you were shooting for so what's the plan there
1: Yeah, so Another Day at the Office is – the issue that's about to come out is a number one of three-issue miniseries. Okay. Um, And I want to keep doing finite stories with Another Day at the Office um, simply because if I get too involved in something else, I want to be able to put it down without leaving people hanging. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think Brian Michael Bendis did that with Powers a couple times where he was like, oh, I'm too busy, and he would step away for like a year. He'd be like, well, wait a minute. like." we were on a cliffhanger there. Like we kind of want to know what's going on. So sure. I don't want, I don't want to burn readers like that. I want to try and respect people because I want their money to make books. You know, I don't want to, I don't want, I don't want their money by bank account. I want them to enjoy it.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: and so the, another day at the office, I want to try and stay finite, but I, I do have other stories I want to keep telling with it. And then the department of Human affairs, ideally it's going to be an ongoing. Uh, I know that's a, massive undertaking for an independent person um with no i've never even pitched to a studio before or a publisher before like just to see if on my own i can do this but it is my goal Mm -hmm. Uh, and i'd like to be doing two books a month i'd like to be doing it you know every month releasing department of metahuman affairs and another day at the office uh but it's kind of obviously ultimately it's going to be up to the readers and the viewers um but I, I, also came up with. I'm telling people to adopt a comic book series, with the Department of Meta-Human Affairs. On the website, there's an option where they can pay 60 bucks and pre-order a whole year at a time. That's um, that's
0: I like that's a that's a, that's, a, that's an interesting approach. I, I like that. Um, but I want to circle back. Do you for for the Another Day at the Office is is the the three issue arcs the 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 miniseries? Do you feel like that's sort of a a way to uh tell a story and uh you know complete an arc that's not sort of that traditional you know marvel dc five issues for for a trade like you're, you're 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 telling a story but it might not be as sort of lengthy and that allows people to come in get the story uh, feel satisfied but it's not it's not as a, much of a commitment as you know five or, or or 12 and they could sort of do these three do these three or are there common sort of or maybe uh, maybe i could probably guessed this from your love of x-men they're probably three those three issues probably together make a lot of sense but like the next three, there's probably some common threads that sort of uh, continue from, from the first one that sort of add to the enjoyment of the, of the whole thing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yes, that's exactly what's going on. Um, the idea was you never know. Like this, this could all stop tomorrow. So to try and tell finite stories as I go, but also to thank readers and pay off things over time so the relationships he's developing with these characters uh, detective shitely is really interacting with the shroud and with the incredible insects with the upstanding citizen um, as he goes on through his through these adventures and stories those relationships are going to continue to grow and develop also mm-hmm. um, and so ideally yeah you'll see those things pay off over time to where you can kind of you know if you collect all the different books you'll you'll, you'll see one story through there for them but it also told with these other things going on at the same time um, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a convert of uh, Joe Kelly who wrote for Justice League and then he did uh, JL Elite, Justice League Elite which was this idea of undercover superheroes and it's kind of a crazy pitch because it doesn't really fit the Justice League world and he took Liberty with a couple characters Green Arrow's in there and Green Arrow breaks up a marriage between Manitou Raven and his wife uh, so there's some things that happen in that series that are pri- that are a little edgy. You know, Green Arrow, this is a pre-TV show, but he's still a bigger deal. I think even at that point, there's a script floating around that, that he's uh, in a super prison. So like, there's a the possibility of a movie any day, and Green Arrow's breaking up a marriage in this comic book. Um, so he was taking risks, and he knew that. And so because of that, he tells a bunch of stories in three-issue arcs. Okay. And he was asked specifically about it, and basically he said – well, I probably only have 12 issues. It wound up only being a 12-issue series, so he was right about that. But he said, I probably only have 12 issues, so I want to give you guys as much as possible while also paying off as much as possible. And so that's kind of my idea. Like Also, if you look, like the six-issue arc, if you look at traditional storytelling, I'm going to get really nerdy here, sorry, um, where you go you know, beginning, issue, climax, uh, in three issues it makes sense right because mm-hmm. it's only 66 pages you can kind of and flow well when you get to six pages, when you get to six issues now you're talking about 140 pages something like that six times 22 so 100 yeah 132 pages and so all of a sudden you probably build in B plots and things of that nature but that they're technically almost like space filling because they're not really contributing to your main character's stories. And that was how the six, that's how these six issue arcs started to pay off for the publishers was they can stretch things. Mm -hmm. They can make these really long, hard scenes that are really kind of difficult to read through because only one thing happens in every issue now. Um, And so it's almost unfair to the monthly reader. Um, And there are always going to be people who buy trades, but wouldn't it be better if in a trade there were two stories instead of one? You know, so that's kind of my feeling on all that.
0: Yeah, I, I think uh, I think there's a couple of books that I've read lately that have either been, you know, uh, second issues of like maxi series or second issues of uh, events. And you certainly have that that first issue, that that bang, you know, and then that climax, and then that second issue, you're kind of like, eh, what's 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 going on here? They they've slowed things down a lot. So definitely, I I, I know what you say, where they're sort of, you know, they're I think that, you know we all know the phrase writing for the trade. They're sort of you know slowing things down so that they they, they get that page count. So uh, you know the the three issue arc, uh, and I think does it does it lend itself? Do you feel like it lends itself really easy to that sort of three act structure that uh, that a lot of folks know from from movies and, and stories to sort of uh, have three comics to sort of do that that uh, that story.
1: It does because it you can still be you can still be economical, and, but you also know okay, I only have sixty six pages to tell this story.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So even if I want to spend a lot of time and like I want to introduce these characters in a long way and really have people kind of get to know them as real people, but I also know that I need to I need to pay off. I need to give superhero moments. I need to I need to go big. I need to have good action. I need to have interesting characters and interesting moments. Um, and so that means I've got to I've got to be good, and I've got to be quick with my storytelling. I can't spend two issues showing you a relationship that then I break up on issue ten.
2: Mm-hmm. If
1: if it's going to be important that they break up, then they need to be together already in the first issue. And I need to just in the background show you that they're still together and that she's important. If I'm going to break them up in issue ten, like I can't I can't spend a whole issue where they just lay in bed and eat Chinese food mm-hmm. and, and talk to each other and. Because I don't have a whole issue to give you that. Mm-hmm. Um, now, what I am doing though with these is I'm doing eight-page backups. Okay. I love the I love the era. That's the '80s comic book to me is the eight-page backup. Um, and so on this first issue, uh, I got a great artist. He did the cover for the Another Day at the Office. He's doing the cover that's that I'm debuting today for Department of Meta-Human Affairs. His name is Taylor A on uh, on Twitter. Uh, and he's just great art and he's telling the origin story of bounce. It's not really the origin story. It's when bounce meets trout for the first time. Okay. Um, and so it's very cool. It's very fun. And he's, he's got a great style, but that I get to take a little bit longer and kind of get, kind of change the pacing with this eight page because it's story focused only on one thing for eight pages.
0: Okay. Very cool. So I know that you had said, um, Earlier that you plan on uh, Department of Metahuman Affairs to be be an ongoing, um, and you, you're you're currently sort of continuing the story of Another Day at the Office, uh, which are two uh, like two stories, and from the description, and you know I've I've been able to read some of Another Day at the Office. Uh, sort of you know a a take on superheroes the you know the the you know the everyday person or the detective sort of dealing with uh living in a superhero world are there other stories that you would uh like to tell that maybe you're sort of again you sort of you got that 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 thought in your mind that you sort of you're sort of working out is there is there is there a western is there a space opera that uh that you, you that you might like to work on
1: Oh, absolutely. I definitely have ideas. I do want to go to space with some story ideas that I have. I have, this, I have a really weird, like, uh, I guess I'll call them zombies. They're not zombies, though. But uh, just like an idea of, like, zombies in space kind of a concept. Um, and then I also, I really, I think last time we talked, I talked about I wanted to do a horror comic with, like, vampires on the bottom of the ocean.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, then they came out with that Kirsten Stewart movie, and it kind of, I felt like it stole my thunder for the idea, like, the uniqueness of my idea. And I was like, oh. All right. Well, I guess I'll leave that alone for a long time. Um, but I do like I have an idea that I want to do, you know, for like a kid sorcerer. But I just saw somebody is going to be releasing uh, Mandy, the Mandrake Magician, and so like I want to kind of I try not to step on other people's thunder, and I want everything to kind of breathe on its own.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and I like to try and find places where I can be original and sort of alone in my in my niche, at least for a minute. Okay. Like, if somebody comes behind me and does a. Uh, government-sponsored superheroes again, then that's, that's fine. And I know I'm not original. I know I'm not the first. I know there was X Factor. I know at times, you know, the Avengers and the Justice League have worked for the government. But right now, it's kind of this big opening where nobody's commenting on politics and nobody's commenting on superheroes in a world like this. And so I get to kind of have that space to myself. Um, and so that's sort of a fun thing. I, I, like, I like when I'm the only guy in a space for right now. I'm sure that always will change.
0: Yeah. Uh, So uh, as we sort of bring this this interview to a close, um, let's let's talk about some of the challenges of uh, being an indie creator in 2020 in this sort of COVID-19 world where we can't go, we can't go to cons, we can't uh, you know have a table. Or I'm, if, if we're being responsible, we can't, you know, go to a con and, and, and have a table. So so what are some of the, uh, the, the struggles? I know I guess some of the, the good news is that you have some relationships with, with some dealers in your area. But what are, what, what are some of the challenges that you're facing?
1: So COVID absolutely just crushed another day at the office, number one, this, of this miniseries. Originally – Around winter time, I was going to start pitching it to stores, uh, but I've done a lot of research, and what I was seeing was that at the end of the year isn't a good time to introduce new content, new products. Okay. The end of the year is usually a good time to – you'll notice like blockbusters that come out in June and July, like if they come out in February and March, they'll have a DVD come out like in September. But okay. if they come out in like late May or June, the DVD will wait until December. Um, and it's it's everything's dumping right before Christmas. They're trying to get all your Christmas dollars. Uh, and so I kind of realized like it's not the best place to be a totally unknown person. So I was like, okay, well I'll wait. February, March, it should be perfect. Well, <laughs> <laughs> so um, middle February, I'm getting the pages finished. I'm about uh, Alex DeLuca has already told me that all my pages are broken and wrong, and we're getting all the files fixed. we're getting through all of that. I'm about to go to a printer. And so I want to get in order. And so I had uh, – we'll do some insider baseball here. On the first issue, I did about 450 copies, okay. which I was thrilled about. I thought it was great. It's a great debut. So my hope was to hit 1,000 copies on issue on the second one. So I priced it for wholesale for stores that if they wanted to buy 25 copies at 2 bucks a piece, that would be okay. Because I was counting on being able to sell to about a hundred stores, okay. And I know that in stores will talk to you. They'll be like, "Listen, indie guys, twenty five is a lot. It's kind of hard." But I'm going to put the legwork in for these guys. These guys spend their money for me. I'm going to put the legwork in. I'm going to advertise in the area on Facebook. And I talk to them. I'm a podcaster. I'm I'm a a go getter. I'm an outspoken person. I'll work for the money for you. And so a lot of times people will they'll bet on me. Well, then in February all the stores closed. (laughs) <laughs> diamond shut down all the stores closed next thing i know I'm, i've got like i've got like five friends right like i've got a couple of stores that are willing to take a bet on me and i waited as long as i could but finally i was like i gotta go to print this like i have to print this i've got people who ordered it in october that are my friends so i just want to give them their book already mm-hmm. um so so taylor made a great cover uh and i said all right, right let's just, let's just run with it and so that's what we did Um, and we, we, I printed about 250 copies. (laughs) So, um, yeah, COVID basically drop kicked it right in the gut. Um, but I mean, it is what it is. Business has got to go on. People are either going to spend money or they're not. I'm hoping that if I give you everything I got, you'll still bet on me and spend a little money with me, but it's not a perfect world
0: yeah it's uh it's it's certainly been uh it's certainly been a challenging time for 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 everybody and certainly for for creatives to uh continue to sort of live in in that you know that uh you know putting out products and you know there's been a lot of talk that uh the distribution model for comics was was broken far before the the, the covid-19 uh, oh
1: it 100% was i honestly is how can i can i pontificate on that i i think i think what we do as an industry is the craziest silliest model i've ever seen um, my background when i still worked for other people uh, my specialty is i help startup companies okay um, and so, uh, and that comes from my parents have started construction companies about three times um, in the last twenty years, and I helped them start each of them, going through the process of licensing and filing and getting their taxes and all that different stuff. It's it's now a skill set I've developed. And so, when you get into these companies, you figure out their industries. You spend a lot of time talking to their customers and whatever, whatever. We are comic books are very upside down in how we model everything. Mm-hmm. It's really the job of the publisher be getting customers the publishers are really who are supposed to be getting customers it's not the job of the stores to convince people to buy iron man comic books it's the job of the stores to be presentable well lit and to help shoppers find things but if you went into any other store like if you went into a clothing store the girl behind the counter is not going to explain how jeans work to you you either want to wear them or you don't Mm -hmm. um what they will do is they will tell you, you know, oh, this looks good on you. This is a good fit, stuff like that. But we right now expect the stores to do customer acquisition. And, and stores should be acquiring customers for their own sake, but not necessarily for the sake of – they should be acquiring customers for the sake of income, not for the sake of the publishers. Sure. So if, if they can make money selling cards and candy, that's what they should do. Um, it's not their job to keep – you know, vault comics afloat or whatever it is. And so diamond, I really think should have perpetually been expanding the market. Their job should have been, if they want to be the sole distributor of comic books, they should have been finding new places to distribute books this whole time. Like why aren't there spinner racks at movie theaters? You know, like things like that. They should have been finding ways to make these things possible the whole time. And they, they weren't. They were very much happy in the universe they had created where as long as they keep basically the same amount of customers, they keep basically the same amount of money.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And other industries don't do that. If you compare a comic book store to any other kind of retail store – now, and other retail stores have multiple shippers because they have multiple product lines. Findy ships in. Levi ships in. like They don't all come together. Mm-hmm. Now, there are wholesalers and there are distributors in every industry, but there's usually multiple. Uh, and the idea that because there 's only one in comic books they 've kind of grown complacent, and I think that that 's a big part of comic books aren 't dying like when you look at the sales, the bookstores everything 's going up, the young adult readers it 's all going up, the graphic novels are all going up, but for some reason, comic book stores are closing left and right and it 's because we do things backwards i think
0: yeah, I agree with you it's it's it 's a weird it 's a weird the, the the current system is, is very weird. Like the uh, as as somebody who's who's in the comics, you 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 now can get a like a previews catalog, which at one point was designed for, for the guy working at the shop to figure exactly. out what he wanted to order. It was never sort of designed for the, the Wednesday warrior to sort of flip through it and go, This is what I want, but it sort of turned into turned into that thing and it, it right. wasn't and now designed I, that way
1: and now it's our job as the customer to tell the store what books to order for us and it's simplified and it's great and subscription box is a great thing but the reality is like it doesn't work that way anywhere else like mm-hmm. you don't yes when you know there's something coming out that you specifically want you can go to any store and pre-order like if i know there's gonna be a particular video game i can go into best buy put my money down and be like that game comes out, I'm the first person you call and they do mm-hmm. that. That's fine. But most shoppers, 80, 90 percent when they walk into a best Buy, they just window shop and find the things that are interesting to them and they buy them. Mm-hmm. Books has very much become the previous catalog is now the advertisement for the product. And that is that's very broken.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: because you're right. That is the that was supposed to be the internal retail wholesaler document. So that the wholesaler knew what was coming out, so they could prepare accordingly, so the, I mean so the retailer knew what was coming out from the wholesaler, so they could prepare accordingly, then all of a sudden it became and i don 't know i don 't know if that's story laziness or like internet journalism or if the customers just became more aggressive i don 't know how it happened that way, but eventually previews then became like now it 's the job of the reader to tell the store what to order, and how did we, how did we get to like how did that happen.
0: Yeah, and it's, and then, and then, well, this is a, this is another issue, but like, you know, I could tell the real, the, the, my LCS that, you know, I want, I want this book, they order it for me three months in advance, and then I don't show up to to, to pick it up, and they can't, and and they can't return it, it goes into a dollar bin, they, they, they've lost money, so, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very crazy system.
1: It just it just is, and it just feels oddly. I mean, I don't, I'm not the guy. I'm not the guy who says it, that it's it's all going downhill. It is broken, though. The system is messed up. But I can't. We're all complicit in it, and we all yeah. need to do better. Like, there's I don't know, I don't know what the direct next step to changes. I think DC moving to their own distributors was a good first step. Mm-hmm. Um, I know there's stores that aren't happy about it. They're paying two shipping costs now. I know that some stores have had issues getting stuff settled. But I think something that trains us to stop using just Diamond and also anything that pushes Diamond to do better
2: mm-hmm.
1: I think are both good things because the reality is Diamond, if, if all – like why hasn't that catalog become like everything? Like why didn't – why weren't they picking up more product lines? Why weren't they moving more product? You know what I mean? Like why did it just stay just comic books this way, like just this whole time like that? You know, like – and it took forever for anime and manga to break in. Sure. And that was because there was only one distributor. And for a long time, they weren't as interested. And, you know, I don't know. I do think – I feel like Diamond did a disservice to everyone in the last six to ten years by not actively growing mm-hmm. the markets. Uh, because, listen, book wholesalers, first of all, there's multiple companies. And secondly, they aggressively try and find new ch- chains of stores and new ways to ship books. and make new deals so why wasn't diamond
0: very cool well uh i enjoyed the the the, the sort of inside baseball discussion we had there but <laughs> but as we uh as we close up how about if you can give me uh, uh an elevator pitch for for both series that you're working on uh an elevator pitch for another day at the office and an elevator pitch for a department of metahuman affairs
1: uh, yeah, absolutely. So Another Day at the Office, uh, it's a comedy, and it's about a cop who lives in a city full of superheroes, and essentially uh, the humor is almost all at his expense. Um, so it's fun. It's lighthearted, uh, but it deals with the world of policing, which can be dark, and so I purposely keep it light. It's, it's even colored brightly as a way to sort of trick the brain into having a good time even when maybe it's not supposed to. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's a fun book, and I hope people enjoy it and keep taking that ride with me. Uh, And the Department of Meta Human Affairs is my love letter to Chris Claremont's X Men, my thank you for my childhood. Uh, And I'm mashing it up with West Wing. And um, it's got a lot of interesting characters that I've spent a lot of time kind of developing. Um, There's Bounce, who's a former teenage sidekick. There's uh, Fury, who, in the spirit of Walt Whitman, is in jail for not paying her taxes because she thinks the government's unjust. Um, There's all these kind of just these interesting characters who are going through their own journey, and now they have to step up and kind of help keep the world safe. And that might be a little too much for them. Um, But it's gonna be fun to check it out. And I am asking people to adopt a comic book series. Go to coreydlg.squarespace.com. And for $60, they can just pre-order the whole first year of the Department of Meta-Human Affairs. Um, I'll be very upfront with you. If it doesn't work out, I will send you your money back. I don't want to keep anybody's money. Uh, I just want to be able to make my comic books. Uh, but yeah, you can pre-order the whole year, or you can even just pre-order the first arc, uh, which is called the first seven days, um, and it's only sixteen fifty. That's a little bit of a discount off the cover price, but just five ninety nine. And okay. if you just want to pre-order the first issue, you can do it that way too.
0: Very cool. Um, so, in addition to that Squarespace site, if people want to follow you on social media to to see you know images or, or, or to keep up with, with projects, where where should they go to to follow you o- online?
1: Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, on Twitter, I'm at Corey DLG. Uh, on Facebook, if you go to Nerd Thug Radio, that's my podcast, my radio show, and I do everything through there uh, just because that's where I have the loudest megaphone on Facebook. Um, and then uh, I should probably start doing Instagram, but I kind of hate it, so I don't. Uh, but it is at Corey DLG there as well. Um, but yeah, Corey DLG pretty much is a very searchable term. I've worked very hard to make that happen. Uh, and you can find me basically anywhere like that.
0: Awesome. Well, um, we're going to have links to, to the social media, uh, links to, to the Squarespace site. So folks who have listened to this can can jump in um, and either, you know, do that, uh, the, the larger tier package where they adopt the comic or, or maybe they, they, they dip their toes in for, for a bit. And, and I've had a few it.
1: people dip their toes in, which I think is great. Like, I, I, don't, I don't mind whichever way you do it. The adopting a comic book series is something I'm trying out. I see a lot of people do like Kickstarters where they'll spend a lot of money for, for not a lot of pages. So I'm hoping if people are willing to spend money and get literally a year's worth of comic books.
0: Yeah, no, it's, uh, yeah, I would think, uh, yeah, It's and it's certainly, uh, it's, a, it's a novel concept that uh, uh, it's almost sort of, you know, we live in a subscription-based world um, so loot it's and all that.
1: That was sort of the little bit of the inspiration. I almost thought at one point, like, what if I made a comic book and sold it to Loot Crate? But I don't. Then they went bankrupt, and I don't really want them. Like, I'd hate for them to back out halfway through something, and I'm stuck with it.
0: Sure, sure. No, well, Corey, I'm glad that uh, you were able to come back. Uh, I, I I appreciate you coming back. Uh, this was a another great discussion on. Uh, uh, making comics so you have an open invite uh any any other projects more issues of uh either series you want to come back and, and talk about we'd love to have you on to talk about those and also just to talk about uh we can we could talk about making comics we can talk about the 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 business model of current comics and distribution like we did here so uh that that'll be a lot of fun so Uh, again, I just want to thank you, uh, for, for being on, uh, and a reminder to anybody listening, uh, links to all Corey's stuff are going to be in the show notes of this podcast. Uh, if you want to follow this podcast, you can follow us on Twitter at ConstructComPod. Instagram is ConstructedComicsPod. Facebook and YouTube is ConstructedComics. Uh, I'd like to thank everybody for, for listening. Everybody be safe, uh, be nice to each other and go out there and, uh, make some comics.